Our scripture passage this evening is Romans chapter 4, the first eight verses. can be found in your pew Bible on page 1751. Paul, after showing that both Jews and Gentiles are condemned, they cannot have righteousness by the law, no one seeks after God, no, none is righteous, Uh, the wages of sin are death, and after saying, starting in verse 27 for context, where then is boasting, it is excluded, on what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. In our text, what then shall we say that Abraham... Our forefather discovered in this matter. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, His faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Also this evening, Lord's Day 23 can be found on page 30, in the back of your green Psalter hymnals. And I'll read both question and answer for this Lord's Day this evening. What good does it do you, however, to believe all this? In Christ I am right with God and heir to life everlasting. How are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Why do you say that by faith alone you are right with God? It is not because of any value my faith has that God is pleased with me, Only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness make me right with God. 
and I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. That is the teaching of the catechism. Warren Wearsby uh, tells a story that he heard about the doctrine of justification in his book, Key Words of the Christian Life. This is what he writes. My friend, Dr. Roy Gustafson, has the finest illustration of justification I have ever heard. It seems that there was a man in England who put his Rolls Royce on a boat and went across to the continent to go on a holiday. While he was driving around Europe, something happened to the motor of his car. He called the Rolls Royce people back in England and asked, I'm having trouble with my car. What do you suggest I do? Well, the Rolls-Royce people flew a mechanic over to the continent. The mechanic repaired the car and flew back to England and left the man to continue his wonderful holiday. As you can imagine, the fellow was wondering, man, how much is this going to cost me? So when he got back to England, he wrote the people a letter and asked what he owed. He received a letter from the office that read, Dear Sir, There is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. He ends by saying that is justification. A moment of review is in order here. We've been going through the catechism in the evening, showing the Word of God as summarized and the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism. And we're in the section now that's about the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. The last few few weeks, in fact, from Lord's Day 7, I believe, we've been going through the Apostles' Creed. But now the Apostles' Creed is over, and we're transitioning into the nature of our salvation. And you may wonder, why exactly is this Lord's Day and the next Lord's Day about the Holy Spirit and our sanctification when really it's speaking about the nature of salvation, justification. But if you remember, back in Lord's question and answer 20-something, I think actually maybe it was 20, we were told that only those who have true faith have salvation in Jesus Christ. And what is true faith? True faith is created in me by the Holy Spirit. So that's important to note since this is still about the Holy Spirit and our justification. Our theme this evening is simple yet profound. Justification, that's a big word. I can say being made right with God is by faith alone. Justification is by faith alone. This is what our forefathers fought for in the Reformation. This is the gospel. This is so important because one little veer to the right, one little veer to the left, and we've lost it. In fact, one of my favorite professors at Mid-America says, scratch a Christian Reformed uh, member and you'll find a Catholic underneath. He's joking, but you know what he means by it. He means often we fall into this temptation to believe that somehow our works, our good deeds are still grounds 
for our justification, our position before God. So this is important. Number one, we're going to talk about the value. This is the answer to the question, so what? Right? So what that we believe and confess all these things about the Apostles' Creed? Number two is the cause. This is the answer to the question, how exactly? How exactly are we made right with God? How does that happen? And number three is the nature. Okay, it's by true faith, but what is the nature of true faith, right? What is? What is it? And we're going to interact with maybe a, a common question or a common objection to this doctrine of justification by faith alone. So let's look at number one, the value. So what? This is a thought-provoking question that's given to us in the catechism, and it's similar to the ones that we've seen in other places. What is the benefit of Christ's resurrection? How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? How does it advantage you? How does it help you? Here it says, what good does it do you, however, to believe all of this? The all this is Lord's Day 7 to Lord's Day 22. All that we confess about, I believe God the Father, and all the way to, in the life everlasting. What good does it do us to confess these things? The good is described in two ways. With the understanding that this is all in Christ. That describes our union with Christ, right? In Christ, I am made right with God. And this is another way of saying justification, right? And with Christ, I am made heir. In Christ, I am made heir to everlasting life. These are the goods. Now, if you were hoping that I was going to say Rolls Royce or uh, a bag full of money or free food for the rest of your life, sorry to disappoint you. You see, there's probably going to be many who would be disappointed to hear that all that I get out of believing and confessing these things is being made right with God and made heir to everlasting life? Give me a bucket of that. Give me a pile of that. I want to see it. We live in a very materialistic society, right? These, though, are intangible, immaterial, spiritual goods. They're spiritual realities that see no immediate material return. And I say immediate because, remember what Jesus said, there is no one who will not lose brothers, sisters, fathers, houses, fields, in this life who will not get, multiply that in this life and the life to come, right? So we do gain something, but it's not what you think. What if being made right 
with God, an heir to everlasting life, means you have to give up the American dream. It means you have to prepare for suffering. What if the good that this, these gospel truths give to us doesn't mean, quote, your best life now? Is this still good? Is it good enough to answer the question, so what? Many would say no. But the believer would say yes. And they would say yes for one reason. These two things right here, they presuppose what we deserve because of our sin. They presuppose what we deserve because of our sin. What do we deserve because of our sin? Eternal condemnation. It's objects of God's holy, righteous, and perfect wrath. Therefore, the good is that we do not get what we deserve. Final judgment. But because of Christ's saving work on our behalf, we receive the opposite. Eternal life. In fact, you can flip question and answer 59 and ask yourself, how would this be answered if you did it the other way around? What good does it do you, however, to not believe all this? That is, apart from Christ, I am at odds with God, and I am heir to life of eternal judgment. What good does it do a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? And having discussed life everlasting in the last Lord's Day, the Catechism in Lord's Day 23 goes on to describe in greater detail the first item of question and answer 59, that of being made right with God. So let's look at that together. If you want to know how important this is to the Catechism writers, you should take note of one thing that this question has more proof texts than any of the other questions, question and answers in the catechism. 18, I believe. 18 proof texts to question and answer 60. The question is, how exactly? How exactly are we made right with God? How exactly does this great exchange occur? Why do I call it a great exchange? Because in this justification by faith alone, Christ takes all our sin and we get us, we get all of his righteousness. It's a great exchange. How exactly does it happen? How are we made right with God? Christian comfort consists in knowing and having a strong conviction that we are righteous in God's sight by grace alone, through faith alone. 
Grace alone through faith alone. Now, it's important that we see these words right here, alone, because the Catholic Church, and I say that on purpose because I don't want anybody to think that I'm attacking Catholic individuals because the Catholic Church is not monolithic, and many people in the Catholic Church are, um, are believers by God's grace. But the Catholic Church will say, we are saved by grace through faith. But it's alone that's important. It's alone that caused the Reformation. It's alone that makes all the difference here. This was the big thrust of the Reformation, justification by faith alone. This was the epiphany of Martin Luther as he was reading the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 17. One of the key doctrines that this catechism intends to nail down and to get across to its audience is this very fact. The fact in which John Calvin said the entire church stands on this. Justification by faith alone. I believe that this was so important that this was the point on which I determined I would either continue in the ministry of the church I was pastoring before or not. Because they did not believe in justification by faith alone. They believed in justification by faith plus baptism. That's not the gospel. If you say justification by faith and you've already lost it. You've given it up. We'll get, we'll get to more of that. I'm sorry. I'm getting passionate about this. I know. One of Martin Luther's famous Latin phrases was this. Simul justus et peccator. At the same time, Justified and sinner. At the same time, justified and sinner. This is what Martin Luther would die for. This is what many people died for. In answer 60, we see that we are still sinner, yet we are justified. Look at what it says. How are you right with God? The answer is by true faith in Jesus Christ. But then this is what it says about this right here. And actually, I wrote too much because I'm going to come back here and I want, to write, I, know, I want you guys to see this. I need a bigger board. About the fact that we are still sinners, right? It says, our conscience accuses us Of the fact that we've sinned against all God's commandments. God's commandments we haven't even been able to keep one, couldn't even keep one. Or any of them is what it says, right? And of never having kept any of them, and number three, still inclined 
still given to evil, right? This is what it says about sinner. When Martin Luther says that we are simul justus et peccator, that we are at the same time justified in sinner, the catechism tells us, yes, our conscience accuses us that we've sinned against God's commandments, can't even keep any of them, and we're still inclined to evil. This is the confession of a Christian. This is a confession of a comforted believer of Lord's Day One. One who's been born again to a sensitivity of their own sin. An awareness of it that continues to call out for God's grace and power to overcome and to be cleansed. Let me ask you the question. Who do you believe is the more mature Christian? The one who says, oh no, I've conquered sin. I've finally lived long enough that you know, I really don't struggle with sin the way I used to. Or the one who says, as I grow older and the longer I am a Christian, the more I become aware of how holy or how more I become aware of how often I offend my God and my Savior. Which one's the more mature Christian? I would pick number two. I would pick number two. And that's what the catechism is teaching us here. But then look. Oh, that nevertheless. That's a wonderful nevertheless. Nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, there's the grace alone, God grants and credits to me. God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction. The perfect righteousness. And the perfect holiness. Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior. In this, we are treated as if we had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if we'd been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. As if we had never sinned nor been a sinner, you need to understand, is the fact that Jesus' work upon the cross and his work for our salvation not only covered up the fact that we are born in Adam, and, and we are imputed Adam's sin, that we are credited Adam's sin, but also the fact that we have sins we personally committed. Christ takes care of both of those for us. But that's the blank slate, right? But what about future grace? And that's why it says, as if I had been perfectly Obedient, as Christ was obedient for me. Look at this. These three words, satisfaction, righteousness, holiness. We shouldn't skip over those too fast. This is what God is imputing to us. This is what God is crediting to us. This is what God is giving to us out of sheer grace, or what the catechism says, grants and credits to me, right? These three things of Christ overcome all three accusations that are brought against us by our conscience. My conscience accuses me that I've sinned against God's commandments. But now, standing against that is the perfect satisfaction of Christ. He atoned for those crimes with his blood. 
And that satisfaction is credited to me. The second accusation of my conscience is that I have not even been able to keep one of these commandments. And this gross disobedience of mine is canceled by the perfect obedience of Christ. His righteousness, his walking in the paths of of righteousness of God's law given to me as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ himself was obedient. And we all know I wasn't. And the third accusation of still being inclined toward all evil, right here, that is the accusation of my inner depravity. I'm, not no, I'm no longer totally depraved, but I still struggle against the flesh, right? And unholiness. These are made right by the perfect holiness of Christ. That I may be treated as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. This is probably the strongest words that I could use to describe these marvelous truths, to describe the gospel of grace to you. It would be to say that God treats us as if we are Christ himself. That is how mysterious and wonderful and beautiful The union is between Christ and those he died for. But how is this grace received? Question and answer 60 at the end says, all I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. This grace is given to us, credited to us, granted to us by a true faith created in us by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way A rock-hard heart can be softened to become a believing heart. But what about the nature? The nature of this saving faith. The nature of justification by faith alone. Because somebody could say, right? Somebody could say, well then, isn't Faith, the one work, isn't faith the one only work that God will accept is the work of faith itself? But to do so would be a grave mistake. What we need to understand is this. It's not because by. It's not because it's by. It's not because of faith that we are justified. It is by faith that we are justified. Or we could say through faith that we are justified, right? Through faith we're justified, not because of faith are we justified. Paul uses faith as the opposite of law or works. Example is Romans 3.28 that we read, right? That we, we say that man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Mm-hmm. The work of Christ is the only ground of our righteousness before God. Therefore, faith cannot be a work. Faith is simply the means. The means by which we receive the perfect work of Christ. 
Faith is the hand that receives the gift. It's an empty hand. Faith is the instrument by which we receive the grace of God. It's not a work. It's not a work. This means that we should not put trust in our own works in order to change our standing before God. And when I say that, maybe you think to yourself, of course not, that sounds silly. But think about this. Don't think works of the law like Old Testament. Think, well, I've been a faithful church attender. I've served on the council multiple times. I have given above 10% in my offerings. As Professor Vanderhart also told me of a young, or of an old uh, Christian Reformed woman that he knew, she said, I've given many offerings to the church. And when he told her, well, that won't save you, she said, yeah, of course, but it helps. Not even those works. Not even those works. And the thing that we should also not do is look to the strength of our own faith in order to measure its strength, its genuineness. Because that would be to make faith the object of our faith instead of Christ, who is the object of our faith, right? Faith itself is not the object of our faith. It's like when people come to me and say, I don't know if I'm elect. I say, that's the wrong question. The question you should be asking is, do you believe in Jesus? We should look to Christ to seek our life not in ourselves. As many of our old profession of faith statements say, but only in Jesus Christ. To seek our life not in ourselves but only in Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior. I want to end this evening with an illustration from our family history. It's an illustration given to us in the Word of God itself. You see, when we in the New Testament look back upon the Old Testament as the prime example of what it means to be justified by faith alone, it's always about Father Abraham. That's what Paul uses here when he says, What then shall we say? that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? And then a quotation from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed. What's another word for believed? Abraham had faith. Abraham trusted And it was credited to him, imputed to him, granted to him, given to him as righteousness. Listen to what happens next. Now, when a man works, 
His wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. As I pondered, maybe how I could trusty, trusted. As I pondered how I could better clarify this, it would be maybe something like this. Now, at this point, I am an employee of Cottage Grove Christian Reformed Church. I receive wages for the work which you have called me to do. The Bible says that's okay. It says a man is worthy of double honor, especially those who, who labor in teaching and preaching, right? Amen. Can I get an amen? But let's imagine that one Sunday I come in, and I'm not aware of this, and one of the elders says, Carrie, we'd like you to come forward. We want to honor you this day. We want to, we want to show you grace. And you come for, I come forward, and we say, Carrie, we're just so thankful for all the work that you've been doing for the church, and so here you go. And I open it up, and it's my paycheck. Now, what would I think? At that point. Now, I probably wouldn't say anything. I would probably go home and I would probably say, what was that all about? Because that was not showing me any honor or grace that was paying me for the work that I've done. Right? When a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, does not work, But trust God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. We got another example here, David. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits, imputes, gives, grants righteousness apart from works. And a quotation from Psalm 32 says, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now what Paul is saying concerning Abraham and what Paul is saying concerning David is this. The reason Abraham's faith could be credited as righteousness and the reason David proclaimed that the blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never hold against him is because they were looking forward to the cross of Jesus Christ in which Jesus Christ purchased for us by his perfect, complete, and sufficient work all the righteousness satisfaction, and holiness that his people would ever need. That's what it means when we say that we're justified by faith alone. What we mean is that Christ is a perfect Savior or he is not a Savior. And trust me, Christ is a perfect Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you for the salvation you've given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. May our faith be strengthened with the knowledge that it is nothing that we have done to have deserved this. It is nothing in us that makes us differ from another. But All that we have has been given to us 
that our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is all to your glory alone. And may we ever hold dear and protect the beauty of this gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.